Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today is Tuesday, January 18th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. A lot of football being watched this past weekend. It's It's been a lot. We'll get into that. We'll talk about the schedule and what it made the games look like. Just a little organizational stuff before we get going here. You guys hopefully will be listening to this on Tuesday at some point during the day. We are recording this before Cardinals Rams, but we will have a reaction to Cardinals Rams in the feed by the time you guys listen to this. So just giving you a sense, if something insane happens in the Cardinals Rams game, this is why we are not addressing it because we're recording before that game happens. So I just wanted to lay that out for everyone so they understood the timeline on which this stuff is happening. That's that's a good disclaimer. I don't know you're able to play with time like that. So you need to definitely add that to your Wikipedia page. Uh, it's really the only strength I have as a podcast host. <laughs> so obviously over the course of the season when we've done these Tuesday shows, they've been mailbags. We are going to incorporate some listener questions into the shows that we're going to do during the playoffs. But I felt like it was so silly to not use your insight on the biggest games of the season, on the games where all of these moments become so much bigger and so much more important and analyzed and crucial. So we're going to go back and kind of do some second day analysis of some of the wildcard games that happened last weekend, along with some mailbag questions over the course of the rest of the year. So hopefully that sounds good to everybody. I want to start with the Cowboys situation. Now that we've had, it's 345 Central Time on Monday, okay? So we've had about 24 hours to process the end of that game, some of the decision-making in that game. As somebody who has dealt with just the free-for-all, 
weird nature of some of those in-game decision-making moments, now that you've had a day to breathe, I, I need your take on what happened in Dallas and what those decisions looked like for Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys. It's like an avalanche. It just the snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I just think it's dumber and dumber. Uh, <laughs> now I that you've had was, more time to analyze it, it's gotten stupider. Yeah, it was really bad in the moment, and then I've thought about it a lot and talked about it and considered it from all angles. And I've seen McCarthy try to throw his analytics staff under the bus, and that was fake, by the way. That was not that real. Wasn't? That no. was not real. That was not a real quote. What, so, is it, what does it say that head. we all believed that that was real? You got it. Says a lot. You got to keep your head on a swivel when it comes to quotes on the internet. We live in a world of aggregation where anything could be possible. Double check everything. Just okay. So here's the problem. So the person, so I keep a pretty tight timeline. I don't really follow too many people. So I read most of the things on my timeline because I follow those people for specific reasons. Like some of them are friends. Some of them are for fun. Some of them are for football. So that obviously came across my timeline and whoever put it out there is not a good person because they did not throw a follow-up and say, hey, just to let you know, this was fake. It's not true. So I'm not going to go back and try to find who put it on there. But uh, people, if you get duped by a fake, you got to put it out there that it's fake because this this, this type of thing happens. So uh, please, please do better next time. So obviously, I mean, there's a lot to dig into. Which of those decisions, which of those scenarios was the most troubling to you? The most troubling was the last one, the 14-second QB draw, because there's a lot of things wrong with it. They were just on the precipice of not having enough time to run a play and then be able to safely get it to the line and spike it. We saw that obviously pan itself out. I don't really agree with the play call either because Dak has to catch the snap, kind of do a quasi-fake. The O-line has to block it all correctly. There were only three defense linemen at the time, but like one of those guys can slip off. It's not necessarily the easiest thing to just run through the middle. And then Dak has to run from, I think they were, what, the 40-yard line? So he catches it at the 45, 44-yard line, takes a step back to the 46, and then he's got to run all the way to like the 30 to really make it worth anything. So he's running 16 yards going from a complete standstill. Well, if he catches it and just throws it to one of his receivers who's already eight or 10 yards downfield if you go back and watch or see the screenshots like those receivers are all wide open because San Fran is covering the sidelines because they realize really anything in the field of play is fine we can give that up so Dak could just take it reasonably so at that point in the game by the way right (laughs) they were right yeah he could take it throw a little missile to one of his receivers that guy just takes a knee and then you're taught you either run the ball to the hash place it down or you hand it directly to a ref the things you don't do are handed to a teammate, and the thing you really don't do is you don't throw the ball. Throwing the ball is awful because that requires the ref who's running full speed to spot the ball, to catch the ball, make sure he catches it, secure it, and then put it down. So throwing the ball to the ref is the worst thing you can do. So they just they failed at <laughs> don't all these. Don't trust the hands of the ref. It seems like a sound strategy. <laughs> well, it's true because there's the the good teams who coach it up correctly. They'll show you the clips of guys throwing it to refs, and then the ref bobbles it, and the game was over, or the half is over. Like that. How much time happens. is this? Do you guys spend on this shit? Like, every is week, this, it, really? Every single week? In what capacity? Is it during practice? Is it in meetings? What is? Is it a certain period called a certain thing? Like, what does the actual preparation for moments like this look like? It's Friday and Saturday. Typically, um, you'll go over these kind of end of game situations, end of half situations. So everyone should have plays that cover these scenarios. So sometimes they're evolving, right? So a couple of years ago, um, 
New Orleans was playing Houston. Might have been the first or second week of the season. I think they were at like the 45-yard line and needed to get in field goal range for whatever reason. Houston was playing off coverage. So New Orleans took the snap, you know, threw a little six-yard hitch route, caught it. Everyone on the team is signaling timeout. It's excellent. They get up, they kick the 55-yarder, Lutz makes it, and they win. And so that's a play like, oh, this is a situation. Like, we have plays for this, but maybe we can create a specific play for this specific situation. So then we did that, and then we had a play that was like that. Now, you have something like that already in, and in the huddle, the guys, you know, the coordinator and the head coach are telling the quarterback, hey, we're in this situation, make sure this happens. But coaches like things simple, so they like to be able to say, like, oh, it's Hail Mary, and, like, everyone knows what to do. So... You've got these special situations. You go over them on Friday. Typically, at some point, either in Friday's practice or in Saturday's walkthrough, you're hitting these situations, uh, end-of-game plays, you know, the Hail Marys, the trick plays, the reverses, um, the situational football that you need to because, I mean, you, you practice that all year and it barely comes into play. Like, those situations rarely come into play, but when they do, it's game-defining. So you better have covered it and you better cover it often enough because there are, you know, certain checks at the line of scrimmage say the quarterback can make that you put in a training camp and then it's the third week of the season and the quarterback's at the line yelling like Ringo Ringo and everyone's just like looking like what the hell is Ringo we haven't done that in like six weeks so it has to be fresh you have to cover it every week because it's that important so most teams do cover that I'm not saying the teams don't do do it but on the back end from the coaching perspective like they need to utilize those situations like for all those things we're told like, Hey, if there's X amount of time, you can do this. If there's, you know, say six seconds instead of seven seconds or 12 seconds instead of 14 seconds, like that unlocks this ability on this play. Uh, this unlocks this other option on the, on the play. So you should be going through all those. You cover two minute stuff every week. You cover end of game situations every week. It just seemed like a failure of not knowing that like 14 seconds is just on the precipice of, not being able to get the spike off. We saw that that was the case. I think they could have done a quicker play by just having Dak throw to a wide receiver who was running full speed ahead at at the snap, especially when you get to the line and you see that there's no one in the middle of the field. And then the wide receiver... Maybe maybe somehow, some way, somebody slips, you can duck out of bounds. To me, it's about upside and downside. There, there's only downside, in my opinion, to the draw. Like there, the fact that there is no high end levels of the outcome is really important when you're considering which plays to use in that scenario. Right. So the other thing is, why don't you just have two or three Hail Marys? Like, why don't you just start throwing it at the end zone? Because, you know, I've seen it argue that like, oh, well, Dallas probably wouldn't have won the game anyway. So we need to not give them such a hard time. And like, I get that sentiment realistically one play from the 25 you're probably not going to score a touchdown but wouldn't you rather have 14 seconds from the 40 and have two or three chances at the end zone and we see these hail marys obviously pass interference is almost never called they're usually the last play of the game we haven't really seen a hail mary that's not the last play of the game or like the fourth down call so how long do you have to get that off though do you have two can you get two hail marys off in 15 seconds if you've got a quality clock, clock operator and you're playing at home, you know, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, even two chances, I mean, would you say, I, I'm sure there's stats on it, but like two chances from the 40 versus one chance from the 25. And I'd imagine they probably told Dak, like, you're not supposed to run for 15 or 16 yards. You're supposed to go down, you know, a little bit sooner. So 
having two chances at something squirrely happening, a pass interference, a tip ball that you catch, some other thing that happens. I mean, they've got that was the big mat- mismatch for the Cowboys, right? Is their receiving group against the 49ers DBs. So, like, anything can happen in that situation. I don't know. It just seemed like I'd rather take a few more chances at the end zone than running a play that is that risky in that situation to try to spike it to get a little bit more yardage to just run a similar play anyway. So if you're a member of the Dallas Cowboys now and you're staring at this offseason and you're thinking about the way that game ended and we don't really know what Mike McCarthy is like day to day as a head coach. I, I don't know. I can't speak to it. I haven't talked to players there about it. I have no idea. I know what it was like at the end in Green Bay. That's what I have to go on. What are you thinking about next year and what it is going to look like and what it should look like? Is it hard to kind of drum up enthusiasm for whatever that staff is and whatever the status quo is after it ends like that? Yeah, I mean, probably. I would say as a player – you're aware of the narratives that surround your coach. You know, for Coach Reed, it was like, oh, he can't handle end-of-game situations for forever. And it's like, all right, that's dumb. Like, again, I'm in all those meetings. I know he's very in tune to the end-of-game situations. He's got, you know, a bunch of people in the box helping him out. And that was just like a dumb narrative. So if the Cowboys players are feeling like McCarthy's a good coach to be around day-to-day, they like the decisions, they like the atmosphere, all that – I don't think they'll come back and be like, oh man, this guy sucks. We should have fired him. And I wish they went with someone else. Kind of same thing with like Kellen Moore. Obviously, Dan Quinn had a huge impact on that defense. They all love him. But if the players love their coordinators and or the head coach, you know, the work environment's fine and everyone gets juiced and they'll come into next year. They'll have all this talent and they'll, they'll be highly touted and we'll expect a lot of them. So I don't think it's necessarily something that the whole team is going to be like man we need to move on we're going to tune this guy out he failed us in the playoffs if if that is the case I mean they need to tell Jerry it does seem like there is a lot of communication from the players to Jerry I think maybe more than uh, other ownerships because Jerry's always around he's there I'm sure he (laughs) loves being uh, around the guys and hanging out and talking and all that stuff and so I, I would imagine he leans on those guys as well and he can talk to Dak, he can talk to Tyron, he can talk to Zach Martin, just be like, hey, you know, tell us about McCarthy, what do you think? Now, they've put out a statement today that seems like he's going to be back next year, so I don't think there's going to be any change from that perspective, but there's probably a few guys who are like, man, this guy sucks, and yesterday just like confirmed that for them, but I don't think it's like a tune-out situation or where he's just going to be completely useless. All right. It's time to talk about Kellen Moore, because... (laughs) This has been an ongoing discussion, right, throughout this entire season. And I, I'm guilty of it. I'm, I fully admit it. When bad things happen to the Cowboys, we attribute them to Mike McCarthy. When good things happen to the Cowboys, we attribute them to Kellen Moore. We had a couple questions from listeners. Sean Dolan asked this, and Jeff, who is a Packers fan, asked a variety, a version of it. Is Kellen Moore good? Are we sure Kellen Moore is good? And you wanted to dig into this because you have some thoughts. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure of it. Uh I don't watch them enough with like that critical scheme eye to know like oh this is a really advanced passing scheme. I know they were having a really good season. Dak hurt his calf, came back, just hasn't quite looked the same since. But I don't I watch a decent amount of Cowboys football and I don't ever walk away thinking like man, this offense is steamrolling people and the scheme is awesome and it's just like this revolutionary thing like I think People liked him because he threw the ball a lot and they scored points and that was kind of in vogue 
and obviously still is. We talk about this all the time in terms of leaning a little more pass heavy. It just, I don't know. I don't get the feeling that he's, you know, a, a cutting edge coordinator. I think we could all see it pretty evidently from Shanahan, from McVeigh, from some of these other guys with more it was the raw stats that jumped off the page. I mean, Dak, before he broke his ankle, was on pace to set all the throwing uh, records. Now, part of that is they were down and they were throwing the ball early in 2020. Um, this year, of course, the stats are good and they're a top five offense and stuff. But you look at the personnel and that's kind of where they should be. And I don't think they're necessarily outperforming that. They, they seem to have all these performances that just kind of prove that it's not the offense that we think. And again, in this day and age, we look towards the coordinator and if the offense is putting up stats and points, um, which the Cowboys have, we just think he's awesome. I guess I just don't get the sense watching them that I feel like he's a guy that is on the level of some of the other um, great coordinators we've seen. And I think in terms of him being a head coach, I mean, it. you go to the way he looks and the demeanor and stuff and the stuff that shouldn't matter, but we obviously know it does matter when you're interviewing and when you're going to become the face of a franchise. And something you know pat Shermer in new york got criticized about for two years is that he was too quiet and wasn't quite energetic enough and too dry and all this stuff so there's a combination of all these things and i just don't really leave cowboys games feeling satisfied that the offense put their best foot forward and that uh schematically they were put in the best position the word i used last night and the word that i will keep coming back to after watching the game again this morning and watching all 22 after reading seth galena's piece on pff which i actually thought was very good and very illuminating you guys should go check it out about this exact topic is static it feels static and there are i think that seth did such a great job and i'm really articulating some of the things that you can feel when you watch them and it's that just because you have a quarterback that's really, really good at understanding one to two to three. This is where I should go with the ball based on where defenders are. Doesn't mean that should be the entire engine for what your passing offense looks like. You shouldn't make it hard on your quarterback because he's capable of doing hard things. Yeah. So I'm going to interrupt you there. So I had the same or very similar observation yesterday when you said static. That's perfect. Because I feel like there were all these pieces throughout the year about how Dak is this like mentally advanced quarterback and he is as good before the snap as anybody. But we just watched before that Tom Brady eviscerate the Eagles and like yeah. he catches a snap, balls out. He catches a snap, balls out. I didn't see the all 22 version, but like you don't see that kind of quick strike ability from Dak to the level of like if he's put in the Tom Brady category of being that mentally advanced. The offense, like you said, it's it's it doesn't flow quickly. It seems like... Now, maybe that's the scheme that they're doing all this downfield passing stuff. I, I don't think that's necessarily They're true. not. That's part right. of the problem. Yeah. So it's like there's not the speed and the quickness in the offense that you would expect from this quarterback who we're all talking about as a top three mental quarterback before the, the snap. And then you've got this awesome wide receiver group. And I mean, the O-line didn't have their best game yesterday, but on the whole, a relatively good offensive line. It just doesn't seem like things are flowing and they're quick. And again, I, I mean, obviously I talk about Mahomes a lot, but like, when he came on the scene, it was the the rhythm passing game. It was Andy Reid's base rhythm pass game that made him so good. And then Pat put a spin on it on the secondary stuff. But that offense doesn't work. And we see this all the time with Pat. He catches the ball. He knows where to go. Ball's out. Like, guys get pressure. It doesn't matter because the ball's out. And so we just don't seem to see that enough from Dallas. And I think everyone shares some blame. But we're all talking about this offensive coordinator's potential, you know, hot head coaching candidate because of the offensive coordinator skills. I personally just don't quite see it right now. You look at just how spread out it can be and how static it can look. And you know, their version of 
doing some interesting things is lining up in those jumbo packages with the diamond formations in the backfield with both those. And that's fun every once in a while, right? They got like a nice chunk play action gain for like 12 yards off of that. Because if you're lining up like that, you're hopefully they're going to just cram people into the box. You're going to have a base cover three shell on the outside and you're going to have a lot of cushion underneath because there are three defensive backs out there. That's exactly what happened. Play action pass off that easy 12 yard chunk gain. There isn't much of that though. They don't use a lot of play action. They use a lot of spread out formations. I mean, it just, I want to see more schemed up chunk plays where you're just saying, listen, you don't need to go one to two to three here. This is your number one option. He's going to be open. There is not a lot of that when you watch this team play. There just aren't a lot of schemed opportunities for those receivers. And when you have this much talent, it's really underwhelming when you kind of watch it go again, like I did this morning, go back and watch it in succession, all of those plays. It's like, this is not that interesting. And we're really allowing and hoping that the quarterback's acumen will carry us here along with the personnel. And sometimes that's not enough when you're playing against a really good defense that's on your shit the entire day. Yeah. So then you know, remind me of the, the Chiefs game. So last week, the last game of the season, McCole had McCole Hardman for the Chiefs had his first hundred yard game. A lot of those receiving yards were little bubbles and, you know, kind of simple uh dink and dunk stuff. But he catches it. He's obviously got elite speed. There's two blockers out in front. The third guy who's covering McCole either gets boxed out or he makes a move and the guy misses. So what do the Chiefs do? Obviously McCole had a great game. He's feeling it. He's feeling good about himself. Second play of the game, they have an RPO and same thing. It's a bunch formation. Uh, McCole's the guy that gets the pass. Now it doesn't work out. Maybe the team was spying on it, but usually Pat's got a pretty good sense of if he should throw it. But like they go to the guy and they get him the ball in the same situation that was successful. And they say, all right, let's keep feeding this. Like I know there was a stat that CD didn't have a catch until late in the game. He did have one catch. It came back for holding. Um, so it's not like Maybe he was that was a broken play. That's an extended play. Yeah. So it's like, you would think at some point you say, okay, my best guy's not getting the ball. I'm going to do this little simple thing to get the ball in his hands. I mean, he's the punt returner, so he's dynamic in space. So how you can go a whole half and not just say, all right, let's get CD the ball. Let's get you know Tyreek the ball. Like You just have to do it at some point. And to your static point, you know that was the big criticism of McCarthy in his last years in Green Bay. It was the same two formations. Nobody moved. No one did anything. He ran slant flat combos and double slants and all this simple stuff. Do you feel like more has regressed over the last two years? And if so, do you think there's a bit of McCarthy where he wants to kind of simplify things and make things um, a little bit more static? My guess, if I were trying to just throw out hypotheses, one of the reasons that the Packers were so static in the last few years under McCarthy is because Rodgers wanted it that way. He loved the fact that the picture didn't move. He knew exactly where people were going to be, why they were going to be there, how to set protections. He didn't want to use motion and all of these different things. Part of my assumption is that they're leaning into Dak's ability to see the picture before the snap and what makes him comfortable. And I feel like they have to kind of break out of that a little bit. And we talked about this with Nate last night. You know, one of the reasons they retained Kellen Moore and they've kind of kept all of this continuity with the system and the way they play offense is because Dak is so comfortable with it. But I think they've almost retreated into that comfort to the point where they've become stayed. And that is a problem, in my opinion. Right. And the thing with Aaron is he was basically doing the Peyton Manning, which is you have a two by two and a three by one formation. You line up. 
you have the first play that's called you do it pretty quickly and then the defense gives its a look and you can choose from any of nine or ten plays but i feel like dallas doesn't do that either like i don't really yeah. see dak at the line completely changing plays and starting new plays we see him all the time manipulating you know third downs and where the blitz is coming from and those types of things but it's protections right he's not lining up in a two-by-two formation on second and eight faking a play call and then just completely coming up with one of eight plays to call i, I don't see that so if they are doing that and leaning into it, they're not doing it in the way that's really advantageous and that has the quarterback uh, able to pick from this whole array of uh, plays. So I don't know. I'm just relatively unimpressed by the offense uh, as a whole. Um, I think, you know, Kellen Moore's star is going down a little bit. And I this offense is super fun when it's clicking, but it seems like I know this isn't the case. It just seems like a lot of empty stats. Like they have all the stats and the points and stuff. It just doesn't seem like one of the top units that we think it should be. My thing is, and this will always be something I throw in there. It's almost to the point of parity at this point with them. I truly believe it. This team being in the bottom third of the league and play action rate and explosive plays created on play action, all that, that just can't happen. You just cannot sit there when you're a team that has is paying $20 million or whatever they are to your running back and you have this offensive line and you don't have a play-action aspect to who you are offensively, especially when you've struggled to push the ball down the field and create splash plays in the passing game. Like That is just a way to manufacture those. I'm going to throw this out there and I'm going to see if you think it's totally off base because I just thought of it and I'm workshopping the take on you. In a way... Watching Dak and just how quickly he moves through some of these progressions and how often he can make the right decision, but how at times making the right decision kind of defangs what they look like offensively kind of reminds me of what Derek Carr has looked like at points in his career. Do you think that's a fair comparison? That's interesting. Um, I can definitely see it. I still think Carr does drive the ball down the field more than we think. Yeah. He does over the last two years. Before that, this is like 2018 Derek Carr is kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah, I can definitely see it. Um, I was workshopping something, kind of as you said, you were workshopping something, which is Kellen Moore, obviously not the strongest armed quarterback in his heyday. Ooh, do we I think, like this. Do we think that he kind of regresses to the mean in terms of what he's comfortable with and calls these shorter things and doesn't drive the ball down the field as much because those aren't the things that like he was personally as successful with as a quarterback and so he tends to think like oh the short stuff the quick stuff smart quarterback football uh not necessarily like we have an allen or a mahomes and we can drive the ball down the field at all times i like that i can understand that it does feel like there's some coaches that go the other way though when they get just the because look about what Andy can do with Pat and how it's opened up this entire world to him of like rainbows and sunshine that he never had before. Because while Alex was again such a great cerebral quarterback, there just isn't that aspect to it. So when you get it, you feel like you have to lean into it. That being said, Dak doesn't have like a rocket launcher for a right arm. I mean, he has to win in those ways. Yeah, I mean, he's got I would say average above average arm strength though. It's not like he's to uh, like three crow hops to get at 45 yards but i will say andy reed is much more like attacking mentality than people probably give him credit for because he doesn't really let the media see like how competitive he is and how much he really wants to you know attack really in all aspects of uh what he does 
And so the Alex Smith years, he was playing to his personnel. Um, this offense, I think, as as you're saying, has basically unlocked what he wants to do at, at his heart. Like he is an aggressive guy, doesn't necessarily manifest itself in his outward uh, demeanor or whatever. But I think we can tell by having the personnel like this is his favorite version of football and being able to uh, basically play like NFL blitz and just throw the bomb every play and uh, drive it down the field. It's It's a pretty fun thing to do. The other thing I'll say about the Cowboys offense before we move on, their line has a sterling reputation, right? And we talk about them as though they're the best offensive line in football. They got beat up yesterday. They got outplayed yesterday by the Niners front without Bosa for two-thirds of the game. It doesn't matter who it was. DJ Jones, Kevin Givens, Arden Key, all of those guys took advantage of the non-Zach Martin interior players along the Cowboys offensive line. So if you're looking at 2022 offensive line spending, okay, the Cowboys are number number three. They are number three in the NFL in offensive line spending. This is without a starting left guard. Connor Williams is a free agent. You're spending $17.5 million on Tyron Smith. million on Lyle Collins. I would venture to guess that might be the most expensive tackle duo in the league. Tyron is going to be 32. By cap, maybe, but the Eagles have 18 million at both tackle spots. I wasn't sure if my lotto was making that much. Okay, so the Eagles are right there. All right, so maybe it's top three for for that. And you look at that line yesterday, and Biotish and Connor Williams – did not have good days. No. And if you're going to have those spots kind of pull you down as a unit and that unit no longer becomes like an undeniable strength, then it's just one more thing we have to kind of question about the way we talk about and the way we see the Cowboys offense. Right. And I think those tackles, I think, are overpaid at this point, at least in Tyron's cap. not getting any younger. Right. Tyron's been hurt pretty much all these years. The nagging stuff seems to last a little bit longer on him. He hasn't had... a fully healthy season in quite a while we saw him get beat by guys that we don't even remember who, what name they are uh a few times yesterday that just never Charles him. right it, it to me it looked like i know he had like the ankle thing and maybe an elbow or whatever but it looked like his back was kind of hurting him again like he was very very stiff and rigid much more than he typically is and being pushed back in the quarterback a couple times that never happens for him he's like the strongest dude ever when he's got hands on you so he was clearly affected by his injuries and that just seems to be a recurring thing with him um lyle i mean 15 million is a pretty high cap hit it's probably top five for for right tackles i think he's a good player i I don't think he's a top five guy consistently um so that's you know a lot of money for guys that i mean lyle's still young so you could you know, say he'll still improve a little bit, but as you said, Tyron's not getting younger, he's not necessarily getting healthier. Um, so that one's looking tricky. I mean, Zach Martin's really the only one that's properly paid, probably still underpaid, uh, if you want to really look at it. So, yeah, I mean, four out of five spots are looking at trying to get some money back, get some value back, or needing to replace guys. And that, I think, speaks to the larger conversation about this team because we talk about them and think about them as, oh, well, you know, the roster's still really good. We'll sit there in August next year and be like, oh, yeah, the roster's still really good. But the defense is going to take a step back. The offensive line maybe isn't the unquestioned strength that we think it is. So if you just kind of rationalize the ending and say, well, they're, you know, they're a 12-5 and team. You know, they're a high-scoring team in the NFL. You know, this thing goes right. This thing goes right. It's a dangerous game to me. 
it, it just it feels like a dangerous game, but it feels like a game, especially after what Stephen Jones said today about McCarthy absolutely being back, that we're almost destined to play again next summer and going into next season. Yeah, well, good for us. It gives us a lot to talk about and a lot to bitch about on Twitter, which I know we all love. So I think we, we are the winners here. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. All right. We did not talk about this at all on the show last night with Nate. I want to talk about it, though, because you mentioned it yesterday and a lot of people have mentioned it. Do we need 14 playoff teams? Do we need seven teams in each conference? And are we, is this a bit of recency bias where the blowouts are shaking our faith in the structure, but in reality, it's not as bad as the games this weekend might indicate. Well, it's absolutely recency bias. That, that's without a doubt. Everyone's doing the, oh, well, it could have been the Chargers instead of Pittsburgh, and it could have been the Saints instead of Philly, blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, you're still looking at the 13th and 14th best teams in the NFL. And the other thing that I, I haven't come really... Come on, well, let's, let's not dismiss this so quickly. Getting to watch Justin Herbert instead of Ben Roethlisberger this weekend is a world of difference. A world of difference. And yet, we've talked about this. He couldn't manage to get them to the playoffs over broken Ben. So you can talk to your son and, and tell him to do better next year. It's not, about, it's not about results. It's about the experience of watching them play this weekend. One would have been significantly better than the other, even if we don't think the Chargers would have won a playoff game. It's all I'm saying. Okay. Okay. So here's my thing. The seventh team, I think, isn't necessary. We typically don't need extra teams. We don't need to expand college football, normal football, whatever. The thing that I think people aren't realizing is that it's forcing the seventh best team to now play the second best team, where before the second best team didn't play anybody. So you had three versus six, and those teams were much closer in talent level, and then four versus five, obviously. Two much closer talent level situations. Having two not get a bye and playing seven, you're setting yourself up for these types of situations every year. Now, of course, we don't expect this to be the outcome every single year. We expect more competitive games. And of course, as you said, if it was 
the Chargers in that slot. Like they played the Chiefs really tight twice this year. If it was the Saints in the other slot, like they've got a great defense and they've always played Tampa tough. So there's a chance that these are really tough and competitive games and even that one of the, the seventeenth the seventh seeded teams wins. But I think on the whole, over time, you're having better teams play lesser teams, and that is going to be a bigger chance of blowouts. And it just it's getting to be so I described it as when Thursday night football sucked and Monday night football had some eh games for a while. I think there was a little bit of football fatigue and like, oh man, I really don't want to watch Texans against Jags again on Thursday night football. Well, in a playoff weekend where there's six games and those are all happening one at a time and you can't watch any other football during that, like you're just stuck watching it. And if the games suck, they suck and they drag forever and it feels kind of crappy. Like there was three and a half of the five games just dragged on and on and they felt like, oh man, this this can be over. So that's not a great you feeling. You watched, man. Like yeah, you I know. watched. I had to prepare to do this podcast. And they know that. <laughs> they we all we're all gonna watch. Oh, I know. And they, they know that. We're never going back. It, I don't, it's not going to dilute the product. It's not going to lead to any sort of negative stuff. I just feel like on the whole, we both know we watch enough football. Like that game's probably not totally necessary. Um, again, we're never going back. This is a new reality. The, the positive for me as a viewer and being able to have multiple TVs in one spot and for you as a viewer, like if you do have two TVs, your wife can sit there the entire time and watch whatever she wants on her TV. And it's not like a normal Sunday where I'm like, all right, it's noon. There's going to be 12 games on from now until 630. Like I need both TVs. Um, so the viewing experience is a little bit better, I think, for uh, the spouse. And uh, I think Brooke had a little bit better weekend than a, a typical Sunday where I just go downstairs for the rest of the day. I'm a psycho. So I have the game going on two TVs at the same time. And I have the second TV set about 30 seconds behind the first oh, TV. too far behind. And, well, it's because I play with it. So I use the second TV to, like, rewind and watch plays when there's downtime going in the game or when it's a commercial break. Typically, I would want, like, 12 seconds is the right amount of time. And I would look up, and that's what it would be. But that's what I do as I go back and watch the plays again on the second TV. Yeah, so I was doing that with the Manning cast earlier this year where I had – the normal feed on like i think eight seconds ahead or something i forget which i ended up going with i think the normal feed was about eight seconds ahead so i could like watch that and then i might have actually had it flipped i might have had manning cast on slightly ahead and then the normal feed like a few seconds behind so the play would happen because they're not really like announcing it as it happens all the time they'd kind of talk about it and then 10 seconds later i can go look and like watch the play again and see kind of what they were saying in application um so i i understand the two tvs and watching the same thing on on two of them i think that's nuts i, I don't think that's necessary i think you can i tend to just rewind that given play press play fast forward and by the time i do that the next play is just about to i'm get worried snapped. i'm gonna miss something though so that's why i gotta make sure that i have one going on real time all the time and it's also nice like in commercial you know when it's going to come back so during the commercials i watch the second tv it works for me i i know i'm not saying it doesn't work but i think you're giving into your neuroticism where sometimes you have to push back against it i think that's probably fair <laughs> but that's how i've done it so if we look at this okay obviously the two versus seven game two versus seven games were a disaster last year do you know what the two seven games were last year do you remember um i know we got to watch mitch trubisky uh pretend to be a quarterback for a while we sure did bears saints was the two seven game the nickelodeon game last year totally superfluous unnecessary not that game did not need to happen in any way if that game hadn't happened 
I don't think we would have seen the last year of the Matt Nagy era. So thank you very much, National Football League, for allowing that to happen. Uh, in the AFC, though, the 2-7 game was Buffalo and the Colts, which was a very good, very fun game to kick off the playoffs last year. So yeah. I, know. I don't know. Look, I, more often than not, they're going to be competitive. We got crushed by, again, three games being not competitive and then the fourth game being not competitive for about three quarters and then getting good at the end. So I understand it's recency bias. These games aren't usually going to have that outcome. It's just on the whole, you're introducing more scenarios where teams are mismatched against each other, um, as has been borne out by the course of the season and their seeding. I I think that there are definitely a lot of different outcomes and timelines where those games are much, much better. You know, if the Colts get in, it just happened to be that the NFC did not have seven teams this year. Right. They just didn't. There were six teams because the Saints just fell off. Their offense was not there. The Vikings weren't there. There was a void there with that seven team. But there are two teams that could have gotten in to the AFC playoffs that didn't. That would have made those games better. And the Raiders game was fine to watch. It's one of those things. We're not going to have football in like a month and I'm going to be annoyed about it. So having a couple shitty games that we have to watch on wildcard weekend, I'll suffer through it. So it's already over. You just said, well, the Raiders game was fine. That was the best game of the weekend. And your feeling was like, well, I guess it was fine to watch that. The best game of the weekend was, eh, I guess it was fine. So that tells you how this slate of football ended up. I think that's probably fair. All right. The Chiefs are in the playoffs. There is no reason to not use you as a resource to discuss what happened during the Chiefs games as long as they're playing. You have some rare insight here. So when you watch that game last night, tell me if I'm wrong in feeling this way. But it just kind of felt like vintage Mahomes, kind of back to launch mode. I don't know. It had a feeling of like a 2019, 2020, 2018 Chiefs game in a way that a lot of their games haven't this year. Like specifically at the 2019 playoffs where the Chiefs spotted every team at least 10 points and then scored a bunch of touchdowns in a row. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Specifically it felt exactly that. like the 2019 game against Houston, except we didn't get down 28 to 3 or whatever. It was just down 7 nothing. <laughs> So I actually left that game feeling more discouraged than encouraged. Really? Yeah, because if that was any other team and the Chiefs had like four straight three and outs and then a turnover for a fumble, if that happened against the Bills, they would have been down 17 nothing. right? If the Chiefs start a game, four straight drives, don't score any points, and then have a turnover that leads to another team scoring a touchdown against all these other teams, they're going to be down multiple scores and the tenor of the game just feels a lot different. And you know that broken Ben isn't back there and you're going to be fine anyway like it's much different I think if you're playing another team that is competent on offense so I'm a little discouraged that like that happened I'm very encouraged obviously by the six straight touchdown drives once they got rolling it felt a lot more like 2019 and it felt like old Chiefs deep passes long shots kind of the whole spectrum of the playbook the stuff that all these teams were supposed to be taking away with the too high stuff like they played the right defense on the long pass to Kelsey, but Coach Reed just had you know a better play call and better pass protection, and Travis gets open for a 30-yard pass. You know, you're not supposed to be able to hit Tyreek 40 yards downfield for touchdowns anymore. He was <laughs> wide-ass open. So, yeah, all that stuff is encouraging. I just felt like there was still a little bit too much of the early season 2021 Chiefs in there, and that that's going to manifest itself against these better teams, especially this upcoming week against Buffalo. I tend to be a warrior by nature, so I tend to dwell on the negative a little bit more than the positive. I think part of the reason that we're also down throughout the course of the year is because of the expectation. Like 
we just expect them to score a touchdown every time and we know that's not necessarily the case but like I don't know that first quarter and a half just kind of gave me the like okay this still isn't the complete team that we want them to be and it was a little disconcerting is there an aspect that you feel like is particularly troubling something that you think could carry over that if they don't get this fixed it's going to be an issue I don't think so because the whole year it's been one thing here one thing there like oh, it was a holding call it was a drop pass it was a tip ball it was this other thing like Mahomes has made plenty of those passes you know kind of back to the middle of the field that wasn't even necessarily a dangerous one Watt just happened to be there like that gets tipped and intercepted so it's kind of one-offs in all these situations it's never like okay they just need to fix like the o-line in this case or they need to fix drops in this case and if they just catch the ball like it's throughout the course of the year been a little bit of everything and it was a little bit of everything at the start of the game as well so it's just again had that feeling of this is the bad version of the Chiefs we've seen this year now they flipped the switch and for two and a half quarters it was the best version of the Chiefs and 48 nothing <laughs> looks pretty good or 42 nothing whatever it was we all know that's in there we just want that consistency of being able to do it uh down after down so I think that that's kind of the expectation. That's why I felt a little bit discouraged because it's Pittsburgh. We all know Pittsburgh's not that great. They've got, you know, three stars on defense and Coach Reed can pretty much scheme up how to defeat the front four. We saw him do that multiple times in my career in this past couple of years. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just get that nagging feeling that like they're a little bit too inconsistent. And if they face the right team who's playing well, like, they'll put themselves in a hole that they can't get out of. And obviously (laughs) I don't want to see that. So I want to get to a voicemail question that we got from a listener about some of the specifics of the chiefs game last night. Hey guys. So I have a couple questions for you. Um, I'm a pretty big Chiefs fan and I've been having a good time enjoying uh, watching this year uh, play and develop and more particularly their offensive line develop with them being so new. So I, I think I have two questions involving them that one, uh, Nate and Robert brought up on the Monday show, and then a question that Nick Wright brought up that I think Robert likes to speak about last night. So what, the first one is, um, the screen game, uh, how has that developed, has developed in the, in the last game and over the years, how they've decreased it and, um, increased it more so maybe towards the end of this year with that line developing. My second question is, uh, that Nick Wright brought up, he said that the line might be more of a detriment in some ways because it gives a clean pocket for Mahomes a lot of the times and does maybe limit his ability to scramble and create plays. So thanks, guys. Have a good one. But first things first, what do you think about the screen game? Why, why do you think that we saw it a little bit more last night? Why do you think it hasn't been as much of a staple of the Chiefs offense over the last couple of years as it has been at other times in Andy's career? Well, it's definitely been there this year. They've, they've done really well on screens. I think it's mostly personnel related. Again, Coach Reed loves screens. He's loved screens for 20 years. It's been a big part of his offense. I would imagine the past few years, we just didn't have the personnel that was as consistent in space and being able to make kind of those decisions and stick on guys and do the things that we've seen, you know, Tooney, Creed, and Trey Smith do. Do you think the moving pieces up front are part of it too? The fact that it's been a lot of different lineups kind of shuffling in and out when this year they've really had most of the same guys in there for most of the year? I think that's definitely part of it. But I I thought this was going to be a huge screen year because whenever we watched other teams do screens, it usually was Tooney and it was him being a baller (laughs) on a screen. And like he was the teach tape from his New England days. So I was like, all right, he's going to fit in great. They're going to run a ton of screens to the left. 
Creed has obviously been awesome in space. Trey kicks ass wherever he is. So yeah, having those three guys gives you the confidence that they're going to get on guys in space, make the right decisions. There's a lot of decision-making on screens. doesn't necessarily seem like it. There's also some pre-snap awareness that guys have to be in tune with. And again, those three have done a good job with that. Yesterday in particular, I mean, that's the fastest running back the Chiefs have had back there in a while. And I think a little bit of speed and juice is an asset in the screen game, being able to pull away from a defensive lineman who's chasing or being able to juke a guy in space and set the lineman up. And again, if things get a little bit delayed, you've got the speed to get you out of um, a bad situation. So I think it's a combination of everything. They definitely have the right personnel to be running these screens. Again, we've seen it all year. I think coach just doesn't want to rely on any one thing too much. Uh, the screen is a, a great asset and I think there is a way to overdo it. Um, Do you think another part of it might be that Mahomes never gets blitzed? There aren't that many advantageous looks that the Chiefs will see in a given game compared to what other teams might face when considering screens. No, because I think you screens are great against blitzes, but you don't necessarily go into a game thinking like, all right, they're going to run this pressure and then we're going to screen it over their head. You know, the screens allow a lot of weird things to happen because O linemen are ditching defense alignment and there's probably going to be one or two guys unblocked and now the quarterback's going to have to maneuver you know blitzers and free runners and throw the ball over people and the timing can get a little bit beat up and then you know on these zone pressures the defensive ends dropping and what if you're throwing it into the defensive end who's dropping in the coverage then he picks it so i think a clean look predictable coverage is almost better and so you know okay if it's you know man or zone rules change a little bit if it's man or zone the coach can also scheme out certain things you know if it's this particular zone coverage against this route concept like receivers don't just run vertical down the field and don't focus on anything like there's routes that are attached to most screens and that's part of the ruse is it looks like a normal route concept and so if you're playing seattle and it's cover three and you know they react this specific way and maybe you can isolate one defender who's going to be the only guy left in space to throw to the running back and now you've got two or three blockers on this one defender like that's advantageous so i think coverage and static uh looks might actually be more beneficial now the home run is like you know cover zero and you dump the ball off and the one guy who's supposed to be there gets picked off by a lineman like that's the perfect scenario but that does bring into play a, a few potential negative outcomes all right let's just let's humor humor everyone here and and entertain the second question whether or not the pass protection could be too good for patrick Mahomes. The answer is no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having your quarterback fully protected and feeling comfortable and awesome in the pocket is never a bad thing. And he can still break the pocket plenty of times. Like that's like that's he does something. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to be nice on this one and say, uh, it's more than beneficial when your offensive line's playing well for everyone on the team, quarterback, especially. And there's a reason the teams put so much money into their offensive line to get that production. <laughs> And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mm. 
that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right, let's hit a couple of mailbag questions before we get out of here. Zach Ament says, I was wondering if Mitch could explain the difference in bye weeks during the regular season when you know your next opponent and the bye week during the playoffs when you don't learn your opponent until the next week. Sunday is the Sunday in this case of the Titans and the Packers. Also, how does the additional wear and tear added since the first bye during the regular season impact the practice schedule impact the practice schedule during the playoff bye week? It's a great question. I actually don't know the mechanics of what a playoff bye week looks like. Well, it's different for every coach. So Coach Reed traditionally during the season gives you a full week off. So there have been some playoff buys he'll do that, some playoff buys he doesn't. Typically teams are gonna put in maybe a little bit more work in the playoffs and especially if you've got that buy because any extra days are, are bonus days you know you don't necessarily have to capitalize and have a full week off when everyone else is having a normal practice week so in terms of what to do if you're not like game planning because you don't know what team you're playing well that's not really on the players at all so the advanced scouts and the people who are watching film like you kind of know typically three of the teams you you could play for the most part you've played them or have some familiarity with them and so you're doing kind of the first level of scouting and kind of the the basic looks and then once it's decided you've done a little bit of prep on all the teams and you can really dive in Uh, for the players if you are practicing that week it's typically back to fundamentals and so you're able to really work on all right let's hone in on say you're an inside zone running team and a staple of inside zone running is double teams and you feel like oh it's late in the year we haven't practiced in pads in a couple months the physicality is getting away from us you put the pads on you'll have 20 minutes of individual period and all you're doing is double teams and beating the crap out of each other and getting back to (laughs) base fundamentals and physicality And then typically in those situations, um, you're more likely to go up against your own defense, which you really haven't done since training camp. And I always hate it because I don't really want to go up against like Frank Clark and Chris Jones in practice. Um, But (laughs) there's a little bit more crossover from ones versus ones. Uh, Typically in a normal season practice, the only crossover you would have is in one on one uh, you know, individual drills where you're doing one-on-one pass rush or one-on-one run block, or if you're doing a end-of-game two-minute situation. But otherwise, you're going against a scout team. They're shown a card. They're running a specific defense, and you don't really have to face any of the, the awesome guys. Uh, so the, the bye week practice, you don't know who you're playing for sure, so you're likely to kind of just go up against your own defense, get some work in, stay in shape. Um, there might be certain practices or certain periods that are you know carded against scout teams that you know we just talked about screens maybe uh, screens are a point of emphasis that week and so you don't want to do you know ones versus ones and just run eight screens in a row so maybe you have a carded period where it's a screen and play action period and you can get specific work in in a little bit lower stress environment Um, so it's kind of a combination of all that the coaches can choose some of them will do it like an in-season week of work where, you know, say Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're still showing up. It's just shorter hours and you kind of keep things consistent. Some will break it up. So it's, you know, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, try to spread out the work a little bit more. Uh, every coach has their own philosophy. It's usually molded by who they've coached with in the past, what has worked in the past. And then if you did one specific thing and maybe you got blown out that week, you're probably not going to go back to that same schedule. You're going to tweak it a little bit. Um, also, the amount of coaches that have multiple bye weeks in the playoffs in their career, it's probably a, a small group. So I yeah. think 
like th- for this instance, I don't know that Rabel's had a buy before, so he's probably going to do whatever Belichick did when he was playing because that's what he's familiar with and that's what you know he knows worked for them. So you kind of, as a coach, revert back to either who coached you or who you also coach with and in, in the similar situation. Um, but yeah, in terms of the game planning, it's it's much more technique oriented, and you're going against just your own defense uh, to get in solid work against each other. All right, Stephen Valerio asks. Watching the San Francisco-Dallas game, I saw the San Francisco right guard reach out and touch the center, and it got me thinking, how exactly does a silent count work? Great question. Simple question, but I feel like you can answer this in 10 seconds. Oh, I could answer in 10 seconds. I could also answer in 10 minutes, which I probably will do. So (laughs) the the simple answer is the quarterback signals to someone that he's ready to get the ball. Somehow the center has to get relay that information, and then the center does whatever the agreed upon cadence is and snaps the ball. That's the simple way to do it. So in that particular instance where the right guard is the one looking back, he's looking at the quarterback, the quarterback lifts his leg, that tells the right guard, all right, we're ready. The right guard then typically taps the center, so he feels this physical tab from his teammate. He now knows, all right, the quarterback has signaled him that we're ready to snap it. And then whenever agreed upon cadence you broke the huddle with, say it's, you know, on one or on two or on three, um, whatever that is, the quarterback or the center then starts his, um, usually it's some sort of head movement, his head movement, and everyone's off and it's kind of a timing thing. Now, some teams, I'd say most teams have a guard looking back because they like the center to be able to looking to look forward at all times. He can see the defense. He's the one in charge of making, you know, the, the, defensive declarations and the calls so it's also having, a weird angle with the guy right behind you yeah so it's, having it's the center like around. look yeah. between his legs just waiting 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 typically teams don't do that the chiefs actually do that which is kind of funny enough um but most teams have a guard looking back to look at the uh, quarterback then the center his cadence is it's again it's an agreed upon thing you work it throughout the year again it's typically some sort of head movement um like look left look right snap look down look up snap um some guys move their hand they kind of like do a fake point like point back snap but the most important thing is that it's rhythmic you want your offensive tackles especially to be able to tune into it time it out you know philly does a great job of it it's basically just like kelsey gets tapped he just like wiggles his head really quick and snaps the ball um most centers don't love snapping the ball when their head is moving so that makes him an outlier more than the other guys typically the timing mechanism is move your head come back to center then snap because centers very much like when their head is static and they don't have to block 350 pounders as their head's moving and maybe they have to run in the opposite direction while also throwing a ball between their legs accurately to the quarterback so yeah it's it's an interesting thing every team has kind of their own little variation of it um but a proper silent cadence is awesome for the offensive line and for the tackles. Uh, Alex Mack was the best I ever played with in terms of consistent timing. Uh, in 2015, Joe and I convinced the team to do silent cadence at home on certain third downs uh, because we thought we got a better jump than doing just the quarterback's verbal cadence. So we would be at home. I remember like we did silent count and it was against Oakland and it was against Denver and you don't as a defense lineman expect the home team to be doing silent count so it like kind of confuses them and then also we timed it so perfect it just gave us that little bit of a jump for you know Khalil Mack, Alden Smith, uh, Vaughn Miller, those guys. That's awesome. I didn't, you've never told me that before. That's a really, really fun story. All right. Last question. All right. Gerald Torner says, I have a question that's been torturing me for at least a decade. If you can answer, I'd be grateful. Wow. When a new coach comes in and gets hired, 
You hear about them installing an offense during OTAs and minicamp. What exactly does that mean? How do you install an offense in a way which an entire roster can memorize it? What does this process look like? Again, you don't have to go through the whole thing here, but enough to satisfy Gerald's torment here. <laughs> so everything is written out. So you've got your playbook. Um, these days, it's more digital than paper, even though I always like the paper and being able to flip through. So say you're installing your base run play. The, you kind of go over like the, the the rules before that, like... Every playbook has what's an A gap, what's a B gap, what's a two tech, what's a three tech. Like you've got the simple stuff that by the time you get to the NFL, you pretty much know. Um, coaches will kind of cover that quickly, get through it, get through the cadences, and then you get down to the actual plays. So the run play gets shown up. You've got the formation, the play call, all that stuff. You know, trips right bunch, 94 week, blah, blah, blah. You wouldn't run that play out of that formation, but that's what came to mind. Um, <laughs> the offensive line sees, okay, this is single back inside zone you know some of the play sheets are just like the pictures and you just kind of look at the pictures and you learn from that some of them you know they all pretty much have specific rules so on 94 week you know play side tackle you're the open end tackle block the end man on the line of scrimmage uh right guard you know if you're covered you're going to block the defense lineman covering you if you're uncovered you're going to work to the call linebacker you know for the center it'll say who to make the call linebacker you know again if you're covered block that guy if you're uncovered work to the call linebacker so everyone pretty much has a rule and some guys learn by seeing all the pictures and being like okay this is this play against all these defenses now i got it and i understand some guys need to know the rules and they're very rule based because the rule should be the static thing. If you go up to the line of scrimmage, uh, it should apply to any defensive look you're going to see. Some guys just need to watch the film. They need to see it in action. And then some guys need to be on the field and actually feel it in a walkthrough or practice situation. So for the most part, it's all on a screen, on a projector. You go through all the plays. You explain all the things to all the players and what their rules are. The position groups break off. You more specifically go over that stuff. You know, our offensive line coach isn't peppering us with all the minutia while the receivers are just sitting there bored. Uh, you do that in your own room, and then you watch enough film and you have enough walkthroughs and you go through enough things that um, ideally everyone learns it and has a, a grasp of it. We used to we had a walkthrough every practice right after we got done out of the classroom, and it was the only t- way I could understand it. Like we'd watch a lot of film and everything would be up on the board and I'd be like, all right, like we'll just wait till we get out there. Every single day, it's called STT, set the tone. It's the walkthrough, <laughs> initial walkthrough as soon as we get out there. And then you'd split off and you'd go do another little short kind of walkthrough thing with your position group. And then it was inside run every single day. That's yeah, just, it's, that. it's funny because some guys, like I play with Sean Laval in Cleveland. Like he wasn't a guy, he hated going up to the whiteboard. He couldn't necessarily like draw everything perfect in the formation and this stuff. But like you put him on the field, everything made sense to him. He didn't have missed assignments. He knew exactly what to do. Like he was awesome to play with too. He was an ass kicker. Um, but like he wasn't a guy, if you just only had him go up and, and write on the whiteboard, you'd be like, oh, this guy doesn't get it. But like on the field, it just clicked and it worked for him. Like people learn in such different ways. And that's what these best coaches, they realize what their guys need and how to do it. And they kind of teach in all those manners so that uh, if a guy's more of an on-field guy, he can learn. If he's a film guy, he can learn. If he's a rules guy, he'll learn. Um, but definitely as, as coaches, understanding how your players learn and applying that, that's a, a huge thing to getting the, the most out of them. All right. That's all we got. Another one in the books. If you guys have not please go listen to the Monday night recap that I did with Nate Tice a little bit earlier today. Would love it if you guys did that. Wanted to remind you, starting tomorrow on Wednesday, 
on The Athletic Football Show. Dane Brugler, Lance Erline, bringing their draft show weekly to the feed all the way through the draft. They're going to be here every single Wednesday. I'll join them every so often. Dane and and Lance will come on here. It's going to be great. Please go check out their stuff. They're going to start with just a layout of what draft season looks like, what the top 10 could look like, what this class is like, what sort of quarterback options are out there, who could be some risers, fallers. Talk about Dane's initial or second mock draft, excuse me, that comes out on Wednesday. So I highly encourage you guys to go check that out. We will be back. I will be back on Thursday with Lindsey Jones. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It's the end of the season. If you guys like the show, if you've enjoyed it, let us know. Go leave us five stars. Go leave us a review. If you didn't like the show, don't do anything. Just hang out. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. So much great stuff every single day, breaking down every playoff game from every single angle. Highly encourage you guys to get a subscription if you do not have one. Please go check out Lance and Dane tomorrow. We'll be back on Thursday. Appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.